Today, then, we're considering the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. So this is the first of two messages that we'll have today to consider this wonderful theme. And this morning, the coming of Jesus Christ because rescue is required. Let's think first of all of our position before God. When I was a child, I was about 10 or 11 years old, I think, we were on holiday down in Tenby in South Wales. We were staying in a little hotel on the promenade. And one evening, we were in the basement restaurant having our tea. And one of the waitresses came running down the stairs. The lifeboat is about to be launched. If anyone would like to see it, come and have a look. Well... For a 10 or 11 year old boy, that was quite an exciting prospect. I might not be quite so keen to leave my tea for that nowadays, but I was then. Particularly because I'd already seen the lifeboat station. Now there's a new one being built at Tenby, but it's the same design where the boat slides down a ramp into the water. So up the stairs and onto the promenade we went to watch the lifeboat slide down the ramp splash into the sea and off it went quite an exciting thing for a young boy to watch in those days the crew were called by means of a signal rocket someone in the hotel had heard it and knew what it was the signal rocket was like a huge firework which would be set off from the lifeboat station give off a loud explosion and summon the crew who were on standby. Mobile phones in those days were the stuff of science fiction and pages, well they were little boys in knickerbockers who followed the bridesmaids down the aisle at a wedding. So someone had heard the signal rocket go bang and knew exactly what it was. Now, lifeboats usually get launched because the people needing rescue have sent out a mayday, a desperate and definite plea for help. If not that, then someone else has perceived that they're in danger and called out the Coast Guard or the lifeboat on their behalf. In all of this, certain things are assumed. Number one people's lives are in danger. Number two, they can't resolve that problem themselves. Number three, they need someone to go out and rescue them. Now the Bible brings a very clear signal that we are all born in a state of terrible danger. If all of our lives were to be played out on some great epic video, a real life, real time, you've been framed with all of our thoughts and motives appearing as subtitles across the bottom of the screen, all of us would quickly realise that this revealing of who I really am 
in front of all of these people who know me so well. Well, this is going to be quite a daunting prospect. And I suspect many of us would want to head straight for the door. There would be some not so bad things, I suppose. Acts of kindness, loving relationships. For some of us on some days, honest hard work, honest study. But those bothersome subtitles would keep spoiling everything as they revealed our true motives that perhaps were never quite what we would like to make them out to be. Too often, our words and actions would be suggesting one thing, but those subtitles would be telling a different story. And there would be so many things in our lives of which we'd be completely mortified. And more importantly, we'd also see that in every aspect of our lives as unbelievers, perhaps some of us not particularly proud of how we've lived as believers, but as unbelievers, it will be very obvious that in that state, that sad nature that we're born in, as Isaac Watts puts in his hymn, we would see that there's been scant consideration or thought for God or of what he desires of us and often no recognition or acknowledgement of God at all in our lives. We'd see that for the most part we've lived lives for ourselves, a bit like the farmer in the parable that Jesus told, and allowing ourselves to be influenced by a whole host of different things except God and the Bible. And in so doing, living our lives in ways which go right against what God has made us for. So many unrighteous thoughts and motives, pride and arrogance, envy and covetousness, anger, greed, malice, spitefulness and so on. So many selfish choices, foolish choices, careless choices, perhaps wicked choices, godless choices. Because all of these things in our lives are what we choose to do. So many pitiful emotions that we've been through, so many fears and anxieties, so much doubt and insecurity, so many disappointments and setbacks, such lack of hope, such feelings of hopelessness, so quick to apportion blame to someone else, so slow to take responsibility for ourselves. What would so often be seen in our lives would be, I'll do it if I think I can get away with it. In some people, that leaves them, leads them into severe and awful behaviours of the most horrendous kind. But even in the best of us, even in the best of us, well, I'm quite prepared to ignore and break the speed limit on this particular stretch of road because it's obvious I'm not going to get caught 
And who set this ridiculous speed limit anyway? That's a haughty, proud, rebellious heart that thinks like that. Uh, this kind of attitude. And there's no one here that hasn't said that kind of thing in one context or another. This kind of attitude is, is actually a perfect reflection of our attitude towards God in our sinful nature. A blatant and complete disregard for him. For what he requires of us. Even though on many occasions our own conscience is prompting us. And it leads us further and further away from God. The God who made us. And the God who knows things should be so much different. And we do too. Paul tells us in Romans we're all without excuse. This is not how God created us to be. And our turning away from God, our declaration of independence from God, our establishing for ourselves in our own eyes what we think is right or wrong, acceptable or contemptible, as we trample all over God's moral law. These things don't just upset and disappoint God, although they most certainly do, but it actually causes a violation of God and a grievance of God. All of these things that are in us are against him. They're in opposition to him. They are a rejection of him. All of these things in our natural state. And so it places us under his condemnation because we're lawbreakers, code breakers, defectors, disobedient. On the day God created mankind, we were made in holiness. But we've become completely unholy. We were made in God's image. But we've scribbled offensive graffiti all over that image in our lives. As sinful men and women. We were made to know God and to love him. But we want nothing to do with him. Some even despise him. We've decided we can do much better without him. Isn't that the world around us? We can do much better on our own. But still ready to blame him when everything goes wrong. Still ready to blame him when things get tough. How dare God tell me what I should do? And yet... How dare God allow him or her to do that? We're, we're double-minded people. How dare God want to interfere in my life? But why on earth has he not intervened in their life? How dare God say that I can't be like this? Many people are thinking like that today. How dare God tell me that I can't be or feel this way? But at the same time, how can God permit them to be like that? Quite happy for God to deal with them over there, over that issue. But don't let him touch me, thank you. Now, 
What's the result of men and women and boys and girls living like this in the rejection of God? So many unrighteous thoughts and motives and pride and arrogance and envy and covetousness and all the rest of it. All these selfish, foolish, careless, wicked choices that we make. All these disappointments. All these feelings of helplessness and hopelessness. All the result of sin. That simple, divisive, offensive little word. Did ever so few letters sum up so great a problem? Sin. And God says, as early as Genesis chapter 2, and then in many more places throughout the Bible, that the soul that sins shall die. It's in Genesis chapter 2. He had only one requirement of Adam and Eve. Just one tree. Just one tree that they mustn't eat of. If you do, the soul that sins shall die. And please remember that this condemnation of God is not out of spite or revenge that things have gone so terribly wrong. <clears throat> You'll have seen many times, for example, the reaction of a young child as young children are learning to find their way in the world and learning how everything works how relationships work. You'll have seen a young child when another comes along and ruins their game or breaks their model or takes their toy or takes away a sweet and they immediately react to that which has just happened. That's not how God behaves. We react having no prior knowledge of what's about to take place. It's a little bit like Theresa May at the moment, isn't it? As she tries to sort out Brexit, stumbling from one unforeseen situation to another, constantly having to think on her feet and react to all of these changing circumstances, catching her out as she's having to decide her new position and make a new decision. Is that God? No. The Bible will not permit us to think about God in that way. God's anger at our sin and his judgment of it is his settled position. It's not a knee-jerk reaction. God doesn't work the way we do like that with his emotions. Even before, even before anyone had ever turned away from him, it was his preordained position that the soul that sins shall die. It wasn't something that he decided after they'd sinned. It's not a knee-jerk reaction. It's God's perfect justice in line with his perfect holiness and righteousness. The soul who sins shall die. The wages of sin is death. That has always been in God. The Bible says it's appointed for man once to die, 
and after that, the judgment. Here is our position before God. Here is the position of every sinful man and woman as they stand before the living God. Judgment of our sin which leads to death and death which is followed by judgment. It's a very bleak message indeed. And with my next point, it's about to get bleaker. But it does get better. It gets gloriously better. So there's our position before God. But that's not all. Because secondly, here's our problem before God. Our problem, first of all, is that we refuse to listen or take it seriously. Now, we weren't able to hold our open-air meeting in the city centre yesterday, but if you've ever been with us on one of those meetings, you will have seen and heard the indifference, the apathy, the cynicism, the indignation, sometimes the laughter of those who walk past us when they realise what we're talking about. People just don't want to know. Why? Because of the effects of sin. That's one of the things that sin produces within us. It brings a blindness to the heart and the soul and the mind. Satan has blinded those who do not believe. Their minds blinded by the God of this age. They have deafness. Listen to God speaking to the people of Judah and Jerusalem in the book of Isaiah. This is Isaiah chapter 65. And he's speaking to Judah and Jerusalem. God speaking through his prophet. First of all, he speaks about judgment. Therefore, I will number you for the sword. And you shall all bow down to the slaughter. Because the soul that sins shall die. The wages of sin is death. There it is in Isaiah 65. Because when I called you, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not hear, but did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. They become a sinful people. What was the result of that sin? Even though God was speaking to them, even though God was calling them, they could not hear him. They would not hear him. They had a deafness. And they turned their hearts to evil. And they chose that in which God does not delight. You see, none of us are without excuse. All of us are responsible and accountable before God for the sins that we do. That's the very clear message of the Bible. When we get to the New Testament, Jesus was frequently using this phrase. If, if you have ears to hear, if, then hear. And he said that knowing that many of the people he was saying it to did not have ears to hear. He knew that many of the words he was speaking were falling upon deaf ears. 
But if you have ears to hear, because there were some who did, but many didn't. He said it throughout his earthly ministry. He says it again through his apostle John in the book of Revelation. In those letters he wrote to the seven churches, you find the same phrase there. And those letters are the words of Christ through his apostle. If you have ears to hear, then hear. If you have ears to hear. Because when God speaks, there are many who do not hear. Because they are deaf. They're spiritually deaf to him. They have no spiritual healing. Hearing. They're blind. The mind is unable to see. They're deaf. God speaks and they cannot hear him. Because they are spiritually dead. Ephesians 2 and Colossians 2. Dead in trespasses and sins. Dead to God. So people refuse to listen or take it seriously because they cannot see the truth. They cannot hear the truth. Now, some people teach in Christian circles. Some people teach that all of us still retain at least a small spark of spiritual life that all of us still retain a smoldering ember of spiritual life and that we can fan that back into flame. And actually, the job of the preacher is to find the words and the method to help you do that. No. No. It can't be done. There is not even a spark or an ember of spiritual life left in us. We are dead to God in our sins. We're as dead and cold as dead and cold can be to God. The unsaved man or woman never even recognizes the danger that they're in or admits it or desires to be rescued from it, let alone call out for help. Sin so corrupts us that we are utterly unable to do anything about our sinful state. We remain completely content to follow our sinful nature. There are no people out there swallowed up in sin thinking to themselves, I really wish I was a Christian in church today. They're not. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. We're in grave danger and we're in need of rescue, but with no desire to be rescued. That's our position and that's our problem. But the Bible is a book that tells us of God's provision. And at Christmas time, we focus on that which God has done to provide the solution and the answer and the rescue from this state that we're in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. The great message of hope that the Bible brings is that God has not abandoned sinful mankind 
but has gone to the most extraordinary lengths to provide a means of escape from sin and judgment and to provide a way that you and I as sinful people can be reunited and reconciled to God. That's why the angels sang glory to God in the highest and on earth peace amongst men. Now some of you might believe that God was caught off guard and wrong-footed when sin entered the world. That when he issued uh, that instruction to Adam and Eve about not eating of that tree, he never for one moment thought they would. And that somehow he had to quickly come up with a plan B. As if the creation and then the fall of mankind were like some doomed and unforeseen plane crash. Imagine the days of creation related to a plane taking off. Now bear with me, think of it like this. Day one, the day, the plane with God at the controls pulls onto the end of the runway as he creates the heavens and the earth and as he produce, produces light and separates it from the darkness and calls it night and day. And, and the, the, the plane of creation is on the runway ready to start moving. And then on days two to four of creation, the plane begins its takeoff run and gathers speed along the runway as God prepares the whole world and all the heavens to be able to support animal life. And then on day five, with the arrival of animals in the sea and birds in the air, the plane's nose rises and it lifts off the runway as God's creation begins to teem with life. And then on day six, as land animals appear, the plane continues its climb until at the end of day six, with the creation of man and woman, God levels out the plane and it's reached its cruising altitude and everything is done and off it goes. Oh, wonderful. All completed, all finished and all seems well. It is good. And then, unexpectedly, there's a complete malfunction which takes God completely by surprise and God is seen wrestling at the controls of the plane as it hurtles earthward. What is he to do? As, it, as he struggles with this broken creation, ah, he produces this rescue plan to stop us from crashing and be completely destroyed. No, the Bible will not allow us to think of God like that. He is the all-wise, all-knowing God, sovereign over all things. What is the proof of that? Here's one of them. 2 Timothy, nine, uh, 2 Timothy 1 verse 9. God has called us, called us, those, who are, those of us who are Christians, called us out of our sin, called us out of that position, called us out of that problem, called us to himself 
according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ before time began. Before time began, the Bible opens with these five words. In the beginning, God created. Here's an even more unbelievable message of the Bible. Before the beginning, God gave us his grace in Christ Jesus. Before the beginning. If you're a Christian, God gave you his grace in Christ this isn't a God who's being caught out. Oh no, now what do I do? Even before day one of creation, the work of Christ was all set forth in God's eternal decree. Who has this grace been given to? Those who he has saved and called. Why has he done this? according to his purpose and his grace. How has he done it? In Christ Jesus. When did he establish all of this? Before time began. In Ephesians chapter 1, we read that all Christians were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Paul is talking about something that happened even before Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. We were already predestined to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to God according to the good pleasure of his will. In this is love, says John the Apostle. Not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, to be the satisfaction for our sins. Why did Jesus come into the world? Because you and I, in our sinful state, have put ourselves in the most dreadful position. The judgment of our sin which leads to death and death which is followed by judgment. Why did Jesus come into the world? Because we have the most dreadful problem. And in our blindness and deafness and deadness, if God doesn't do something about it, we'll never be able to do anything about it for ourselves. And so God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died. For us. Why did Jesus come into the world? Because rescue was required. Now this evening we're going to be looking at this saving work of Christ in more detail. We're going to have a reminder of it in a moment as we share the bread and the wine together. This morning for us it's rescue required. And in Christ Jesus, it's rescue accomplished. And that's tonight's message. But this morning, do you recognize that you are in such grave danger in your sin? 
and that there's nothing that you can do to escape God's judgment of your sin. But in Christ Jesus, you may be made right with God. You can have full forgiveness and pardon of your sins. You can be at peace with him because of the one who died for your sins and rose again and who lives forever. You're in desperate need of rescue. But because of God's great love, because of his intervention, which he purposed even before he made the world, you may be wonderfully saved if you would only repent and put all of your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ.